Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. It's good to be sharing the Word of God with you this morning. And as we continue our series on the kingdom or kingdom influence, and um, the subject I'm looking at this morning is grace and the sovereignty of God. Doesn't sound as complicated as you might think. <laughs> so let's remind you of um, our church vision. The headline there is to bring growing kingdom influence and transformation to every area of our lives, community, and beyond. Okay, we've been presenting that different forms over the last couple of weeks since we launched that. We've been building into it, and we'll keep on building into it even more as well. Okay, let's have a little bit of recap, because a couple of weeks ago I spoke about the kingdom, and I asked you a question, a couple of questions actually, and I said, what is the kingdom? And I gave you the answer, and it is where the king reigns, where the king reigns. Now, here is a Hebrew word, okay, that's contemporary, with the times of Jesus, Malchoth is the word, okay, and it means kingly rule. So Jewish literature about that time, when Jesus was speaking, um, understood this word when you said kingdom, they thought of kingly rule. Now let's unpack that a little bit and see what it means, because what it actually doesn't mean is an area. It doesn't mean a geographic area. It actually means the rule of the king through his subjects, the rule of the king through his subjects and his sovereignty. So it's not a territory thing. It is actually a people thing and where he reigns, a kingly rule and his activity in how he rules as well. So that really ties in, doesn't it, with what we've been saying, that the kingdom of God is not political. It's not economic in that sense. It's not something you can see like a kingdom or a government on this planet, although it does affect the physical kingdom most definitely. Um, It is where the king reigns in people's hearts. And of course, where he reigns, he makes a difference. If you allow the king to reign through you, you will make a difference to the people around you. That's undoubted, if the king reigns through you. okay. So when God reigns in our hearts, we demonstrate the kingdom. We demonstrate the kingdom. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is, is the power of God at work in us as individuals. So, Let's ask ourselves a question, okay? We're moving on from this, and we're going to move on to these words here. How, do we, how, does, how does the grace and the sovereignty of God relate to the kingdom? Well, first of all, we need to gain access to the kingdom. How do we become part of the kingdom of God? Well, these are the words here, okay? This is our access point, if you like, from the book of Ephesians that we're going to be um, looking at quite a bit this morning. Ephesians 2 says this, 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved... Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The gift of God. Okay, that is our access point. You can become part of the kingdom of God only through grace. That's the only access point. Through the grace of God, you are given the right to join the kingdom. Now, the other question I asked at that time, a couple of weeks ago, was what is my individual role in the kingdom? You know, what am I supposed to do? You know, we all have a responsibility to advance the kingdom. We all have a responsibility. Now, I gave you a picture from Malachi, which is uh, one of the Old Testament minor prophets, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13 last time, 
of the breaking forward of the kingdom. Okay, it talks about the king leading his subjects at the head and breaking through. And that is an image we see in the New Testament, the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And it uses terms like, the, and the violent take it by force, he uses. And, other way, and so the kingdom is something that is pursued, something that is advanced by people who don't just sit back okay, and let it happen, but by people who grab hold of it. You know, there are no passengers in the kingdom of God. There are no day trippers. There are no seat fillers. There are certainly no backseat drivers um, in the kingdom of God. It's, it's by people who grab it. John the Baptist was a great example of that very forceful. doesn't mean you go around shouting at everyone. Okay? It doesn't mean that. Um, but it means that you, in your heart, actively pursue the kingdom of God. Now, Deborah last week spoke brilliantly on the subject of the keys to the kingdom. And one of the things she said was about seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Okay? So seeking, pursuing, that's the language that the New Testament uses, that those who advance the kingdom are those who actually actively seek it. They seek to bring the kingdom rule in their own hearts, and they seek to activate the kingdom around them. So in every part of their lives, they are subject to the king and seeing him do things. The king, the kingdom penetrates people's hearts. It changes them and makes them into different people. So these words here, for the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. We don't just talk about it. We go out and do it. It's an active thing. So the kingdom is the power of God at work to help people. It's God's reign. It's seen in the activities of Jesus, his disciples, and ultimately in us as well. That is how the kingdom rolls out. So let's try and expand you know, that, because we've, we're going to talk about the grace of God, but we also got to counterbalance that with the sovereignty of God. And when we think of the sovereignty, we think of obedience, we think of rule, we think of these sort of things, and we think, well, how does that work out? How do these two counterbalance each other? Because we know very tr- truly from the scripture we saw in Ephesians that we are saved by grace. Okay? We cannot do anything to earn that salvation. And the grace of God is a theme that's been consistent in salvation history right through the Bible, right from the book of Genesis where man messed everything up and God came in and said, well, this is the deal now, guys. You've messed it up. He still spoke there of grace, that he would provide a saviour, that he would provide a way back. He spoke of Jesus, but he also spoke right there to Adam and Eve and said, right, okay, it's going to be tough, but this is the way you can relate to me because God's grace is that he always wants to make that connection. He always wants to draw us into a relationship with us. Now, this world is completely broken, everything about it, the earth itself, every single creature, every single man woman and child has ever lived. The universe itself is damaged by sin, completely separated from God because of the behavior of Adam and Eve. It comes right through, it went right through creation. Now, a lot is said about climate change these days and global warming, and we have to be responsible citizens. But, you know, this is the true story. The true story is that creation is groaning. The true story is that the earth is cursed, and so is everyone and everything upon it. There is no way out of that. And that is what is affecting everything that's going on around us. When we look at the mess, there is. We, you know, the earth is a beautiful place, but, but really it's a mess when it comes to its whole moral depravity. It is falling apart because of sin. Everything is included. There is nothing inside that that is without that. Now, what has to happen? Well, somebody 
outside of that situation, somebody who's not tainted by that sin, someone who's not damaged by that complete separateness from God, someone from outside has to come and do something, has to come and rescue us from that situation, someone who's not tainted by it. You know, and I'd like to give you a picture of a, a generic person, a person in Scripture that Paul uses, Abraham, and how God worked in his life and brought grace. Of course, when I'm talking about this person from outside, it's God. Because he is the only one who's not tainted by this sin, by this brokenness, by this separateness from God. So this is his plan, and he works on an individual basis, his rescue plan from the outside. If you look at Romans chapter 4, okay, the first four verses of Romans chapter 4, it says these works, words. <laughs> what shall we say then? What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, if you've got a job and you work, and say you do a week's work or a month's work or longer, you expect to get paid, don't you? You'd be pretty upset if you didn't get your pay at the end of the month, your electronic transfer or wherever you get paid. I can remember getting things called pound, you know, pound notes, things in a little brown envelope. That was my wages and my first job, um, so my age. Um, but you know, you expect to get paid, don't you? Coming back to it. if you do something, you expect a wage. Okay, now we need salvation. We need rescuing from the situation that this earth is in. But the problem is that anything we do within the realm of that earth is, is, is just the same. It has no righteousness in itself. In fact, the scripture says that our righteousness or righteousnesses is as filthy rags. So everything we do ourselves to make up for that mess we're in means nothing. It cannot rescue us from that situation. Now, what he's saying here, especially in the last verse, verse 4, is that to him who works, let's read it, the wage is not counted as grace but as debt. You know, there is a debt that needed to be paid and somebody paid it for you. Somebody paid that debt of your sin and your separateness from God. But not only that, you've got a credit. You've got a credit accounted to your account and that credit is eternal life. That credit is forgiveness. That credit is righteousness through the grace of God. He has given you the right. You have to accept it, believe it, and receive it. But he's given you the right to forgiveness because he has paid that price. So that debt, if you like, is, is, is in, your, in your account. You've paid the debt. And we've actually got a picture here that I've got back in the first service. We've got a picture here that shows that. So here is the work of the cross. Jesus died upon the cross, okay? And your sin and my sin things we shouldn't do that we do, things that we don't do that we should do, all that stuff, everything that we've ever done wrong is put upon him, okay? put upon Jesus. He takes the weight of our sin and our shame and our guilt. It goes upon him. And the amazing thing is, and Enova uses the word credited, credited to us, is that we get Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is the perfect and holy God comes upon us. So it's a swap, if you like. He takes our sin, our guilt, and our shame, and we get his righteousness. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? And you know, people say in the Old Testament, oh, how did people become believers in the Old Testament? Was it very different? No, it wasn't. 
Because Abraham believed. That's all he needed to do was to be right with God, was to believe. But then he had to move into a place of obedience. What do we have to do? In Romans 10 and verse 9 and 10, it is really quite straightforward. It's not religious. We don't do religion here. Religion doesn't do any good. It's just man-made. Deborah said it last week. It's just a man-made thing. But this is what you have to do. In Romans 10, verses 9 to 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Wonderful promise. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. They're very simple steps of salvation. That is what we have to do. That is what the scripture says. And in Abraham, we see a pattern in his life as well. Okay? He was living in Mesopotamia, or the Chaldees, that sort of area. And God called him and his family to leave that area and to come to Canaan. Took a bit of a stop on the way, but they made it there. And it's interesting that the word Hebrew, the actual word, means one of the roots is to cross over. So he crossed over. He was obedient. Okay? He responded to the graceful call of God. God said, come, follow me. He didn't have to. He could have stayed where he was, but he responded to that call. And he arrived in that area, and the faith response of Abraham meant that he came into a place of obedience. Now, what happened when he first arrived, and we see this in in Genesis 12, is that God appeared to him. It says, God appeared to Abraham. So God establishes, begin to establish this relationship. You've been obedient to my call of grace. Therefore, I'm going to meet with you. Now, as you read through Genesis 13, Abraham has a bit of a wobble down in Egypt, um, but he makes his way back to the land of Canaan. And what he does there is he builds an altar. He builds an altar. And it says he began to call on the name of the Lord. So there's the pattern, you see. The grace call. Abraham responds. God appears to him. And in turn, Abraham begins to call on God. He begins to call upon that relationship. He begins to develop the relationship. And that is the pattern of the life of faith. He calls upon God and he begins. And, and using in those days, that, that was the, the Old Testament pattern on those things. To meet with God is to build an altar. You know, to have, you have a physical altar. That was the way things done were then. You know, when I was a young believer, a young Christian, they used to say these things like, Brother, have you built an altar? Why's it got American accent? Where's come from? Brother, have you built an altar in your life? So I need to go home like build this altar in my front room or something. It was a bit odd. But of course, what they were saying was, you know, build in your heart. Make a place for God. Make sure that in your life, God is center. An altar is symbolic of sacrifice, isn't it? So that's what they're saying, aren't they? By using that term, you can build an altar if you like and go home in the garden and get some unhewn stone and start to build one. But you don't need to do that. Your neighbors will think you're weird. Um, But, you know, maybe they do think you're weird. Um, But, you know, build an altar in your life. Build a place where you meet with God and begin to call upon him. Begin to develop that relationship. And Abraham had to grow in his relationship with God as well. He would call upon God. God would relate to him. And if you follow the path of his life, he gets closer and closer to God. Until, you know, at one time, God comes down himself with two angels and speaks with him face to face. And Abraham bows them, but he does recognize them. He does know who they are because his relationship with God has grown through that. Okay, so that is a pattern for us. God has, at one time, if you're a believer, he has called you. Maybe you're here today for the first time. You're thinking, I've just been invited to church. I like the singing, but I'm not sure about anything else. But, you know, God is calling you. God's grace is calling you. 
He's given you the opportunity to come into relationship with him. And all of us who are believers will have been to that place. All a different story, all of us. But God called us through his grace into a relationship with him. So you hear the gospel. You hear that Jesus has died for you. And you respond as a sinner from your fallen nature and say, I want to change my life. I want my life to go in a different direction. I want to be following Jesus. It's the same sort of pattern in the Old Testament as it is in the New. But then we, we talk about grace and we're going to talk a little bit more. But by grace we're saved. But then there comes the sovereignty issue. There comes things like obedience. There comes things like submitting to the lordship of Christ. Realising that he is Lord and you're not Lord anymore. That's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not in charge anymore. I've got to give it over to someone else. It's not an easy thing, but it is part of following Jesus. You know, we, we serve out of grace, okay? We do not serve to earn salvation. We have that. It's the gift of God. We can't make God love us anymore. And I said earlier, and Deborah said it last week, religion is man-made, but this is relationship. This is what it is. You know, down through history, there has been many extremes that have affected the church. Now, I'm not talking about heresy, which is normally centered around the person of Jesus. Jesus is almighty God incarnate in the flesh, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's heresy if you say that's not true. But there's been extremes in the church that have affected the church right down through time. Now, here's a small example. I heard of a, many years ago of a small group of Christians in China. Well, they, this group didn't have a full Bible. They only had parts of it. And one of the guys in this small group, he fell down a well. Okay? He fell head first down a well. And he was stuck in this well for quite some time. And he was, oh, yeah, I'm going to die. No one's here. And then he thought, oh, I need to pray. I thought I need to do. I need to pray. So he prayed. He said, God, please get me out of this well. And immediately he heard a voice. And a guy had come to the well and said, hey, what are you doing down there? So they got him out of the well. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, just sitting here. Um, but you know, they got him out of the well. And... Um, and uh, he was so grateful to God. But he said to his fellow Christians, he said, I've realized down there, he said that I had really effective prayer when I was stuck down a well. It wouldn't be really effective. So I believe that for now, and we need to stand on our heads when we pray. <laughs> and they were doing it. I know some of you, what's that about, you know? And he said, because you have effective prayer, because he didn't have good teaching. I mean, that makes a silly example. But I've got some other things here. Now, you don't have to remember all these terms. Um, I've put up here, sorry the words are so small, hyper-Calvinism, works righteousness, and hyper-grace, things that we do sometimes see today. And these are errors, really, that can happen in the church and happen to Christians, and they can affect us in, in different ways. Now, a number of years ago, I was leading a, uh, a sort of an outreach event in a, uh, through the villages in our valley where we live, and I was leading this prayer meeting, and we were praying you know, for the loss, we were praying for revival, we were praying that God would... You know, come by his holy, all that stuff you would pray. And afterwards, this guy came up to me and he said, he said, we don't need to pray all that stuff, you know. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we don't need to pray for the lost. He said, it's a waste of time. He said, because God's going to save them anyway, whether they like it or not. And then I, so I, said, I was quite young at the time. I, thought, what? I said, you don't believe that, do you? He said, yeah. He said, God's got his elect and he's only going to save those. So there's no point in praying for the lost. This is like a hyper sort of Calvinism thing. Spurgeon, who was... A Calvinist, you may say, on those signs, he struggled with that. People tried to kill the church by just saying, let's not do anything because God's going to do everything. So that's a, an extreme. Yeah. Another one we, I've got up there is, is hyper-grace. Okay? That is where uh, someone says, well, look, I made a commitment to Jesus 
in 2000 and whatever, um, and that's it. I don't need to come to church or, or really pray very much. I've made a commitment I can go and live what, the way I like, do what I want, say what I want, sleep around, do anything I like because I'm saved. That is a sort of a hyper-grace view of things. It is quite you know, prevalent in the church today that people think that you can just do what you like. You can't. You know, we are servants of the king. He is our Lord. And he has given us a life to live by. Okay, what's our other one? Works righteousness. I've already spoken about that. You'll see it in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They knock on your door. I often say to them, are you going to heaven? Are you assured that you are? Well, you know, they cannot. They have no assurance of salvation. I know that I am right with God, not because of me. I know that I am saved that my future is secure, and it's not because of me, it's because of the blood of Jesus. That gives me that assurance. I know I have that today, and it's not, I'm not boasting, how can I? The only thing I can boast in, like Paul, is that Christ did it all. So I boast in him because of what he's done. Um, but yeah, works righteousness is at the core of most religions across the world. They say, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to work here, you've got to go here, you've got to do this. That is not Christianity, that is religion. Okay, salvation comes through the unmerited favour of God and nothing else, nothing else. And um, we need to remember that. In fact, Paul says these words in uh, Romans 6, verses 1 to 2. What shall we say then? This is the hyper-grace thing. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So that's the reply to that sort of thing. And... um, in fact, what I'm going to do now, I want to look at um, something I brought up a couple of months ago. It's worth repeating because it's really important. Uh, this is a scripture from uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. It's Jesus announcing his ministry in the synagogue, okay? the nature and shape of his ministry. And it contains what's called a bidirectional promise. Okay? Remember that, I'm going to show it on the next slide. Because they're very important in scripture. We often see bidirectional promises. Now he says these words, Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, that's Jesus announcing his ministry. Now that original context of that reading from Isaiah 61 is about coming out of slavery. Okay, coming out of Egypt, the children of Israel are being taken out of Egypt and brought to the promised land to bring them into relationship with God. Okay, that's what that's about. So it's about release and it's about freedom. Now I'm going to give you two wrong definitions for freedom and liberty with regards to being a believer. Okay, so freedom is not the power of unrestricted self-determination. They're long words, aren't they? Uh, It's not the power of unrestricted self-determination. And liberty is not the scope to act as one pleases. You cannot do as you like. Okay, so if we look at this here, we see that a bi-directional release, a bi-directional promise is this, that it talks about a release from bondage and compulsion to sin, a release from enslavement under the power of Satan, and to be restored in relationship with God, to serve him and find our true identity and calling in him. That is what that's about. Okay, so we're free to live a right life. And out of the gratitude of the grace of God and our relationship with him, we can give ourselves to him afresh. Tony Evans says these words, Dr. Tony Evans says, Grace not only saves you for heaven, but grace equips you for a life of spiritual growth and maturity 
here on earth. Now, I want to look at the book of Ephesians now. I'm not going to read it all. Um, but the book of Ephesians is key for this. It's a, it's a great book because, in a sense, what it does, looking at it a little simplicity, the first three words, first three chapters, tells us who we are in Christ. And the next three chapters, four to six, tell us how we should live as a result of that. Okay, so it's, it's saying, you know, God has done this for you, therefore this is what you should do in return. So the book of Ephesians is very important. In um, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God has works for every single one of us. It's not, that's not a general thing, generally. It's you. As a believer, there are works that God wants you to walk in. That is what he's intending to do. And the promises of Ephesians are this. You all were dead, but you're now alive. You once walked that way, but now you walk this way. You once fulfilled your own desire and deserved punishment for that. But God intervened and gave you spiritual life. He did this because he's kind. Now, that's a weak word in English. It's about you know, liking, cat, liking cats and puppies or something. <laughs> but God is more than that. God is so kind that he did this. You did nothing to earn it, so he gave, you it, gave it to you as a gift. That's how kind he is. The kindness of God leads you to repentance, the scripture says. And so God is so kind that he steps into that situation. And you know, as we read through the book of Ephesians, we will see that we will only be effective if we recognize who we are in Christ. That will make us effective members of the kingdom of God. Okay, I need a volunteer. No one's looking. Rob, will you be my volunteer? You don't have to get up, don't worry. You can stay just where you are. Because I'm going to read something about you. You're, just relax, okay? Relax. <laughs> nothing painful, is it? You were here first ever. Okay, nothing, but I just want you to relax because I want to tell you that you're a child of God. Okay? So you just need to relax in the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to you. Okay? You are righteous before God because of his grace. Okay? So just sit back and relax. You can't do anything more to make God love you more. You can't even do more to make you more righteous because you've received the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing more righteous than that. But I'm going to read some facts about you in this book. Rob, is that okay? In the book of Ephesians, I'm going to read some facts. And I want to put your your name in this when I speak it to Rob, okay? Okay. It says in the book of Ephesians that you have every spiritual blessing, not just some of them, but every single one. It says that you're chosen. Do you know that? Chosen by God. That you're holy. You may not feel very holy, I don't know. But you are holy because you've got Christ's holiness. You've been adopted into his family and accepted as well. Adopted and accepted, imagine that. And do you know, it's sealed by the Holy Spirit, verse 6 says, Ephesians 1. This work, this promise has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That you're redeemed, that means you're purchased by Christ's blood. His blood was shed to purchase you, to redeem you. That you have forgiveness of everything you've ever done wrong. That you've been given a knowledge of his will. Not all of God's knowledge, we couldn't hold that. But you know 
the plan of salvation. You know the end of all this because you know what you've read the end of the book, if they say. You know it. That you have an inheritance as well. And it's not an inheritance that's a long way off. You've got it now. Because the person in the will is, has died. He rose again. But he died and he gave you an inheritance that you have right now. You haven't got to hang around saying, well, when's this person going to well, pop off? I know we may don't think like that, do we? If we're in a will. Uh, but, you know, you've got the inheritance right now. It's all been given to you, Rob. Do you know that? And it's all guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And it's not just you. It's others here. All of us here have got that promise on our lives. You know, that's not a club, is it, that you have a set of rules to join? It's not like a, a thesis or a doctrinal entry into a religion. Let me read you this. This is what religion does. Two men are standing on a bridge. One is about to jump off and the other is trying to talk him out of it. The man asks the jumper, surely you must have some type of faith. The jumper replies, yes, I'm a Christian. The man says, small world, me too, Protestant, Catholic or Orthodox. The jumper replies, Protestant. The man replies, me too, what denomination? The jumper says, Baptist. The man replies, me too, Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist. The jumper answers, Northern Baptist. The man replies, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist. The jumper answers, Northern Conservative Baptist. The man replies, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region. The jumper answers, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. The man replies, me too, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He says, jumper says, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912 and the man shouts, heretic, and pushes him off the bridge. That's religion for you, isn't it? That's religion. That's a set of rules. That's not true, by the way. Um, but, you know, the outcome of these promises that we've saw is this, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we don't just stop with that wonderful assurance of grace and salvation. We then get up and do something about it. We then say, I'm going to serve out of that grace not because I can earn any more, because I can't, but because it is my responsibility. It's my responsibility to work from that grace and to advance the kingdom of God. That's what the kingly rule is, that we advance the kingdom of God and see lives change. Now, some people say the Old Testament is full of rules. I don't like it. Well, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. There are over a thousand commands in the New Testament of how we should live our lives. It's not a set of rules, but it sets us free to live a life that is true liberty and true freedom in relationship with God and bringing others into that relationship as well. Paul says this, and it's our last slide for today. Ephesians 4, 20 to 23. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That is how we should be. And it's interesting, in 10 times in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this term to put on and to put off. To put on and to put off. You're getting rid of an old life and you're starting a new life. You know, if you were a prisoner in prison and you served your sentence and they let you free and you left the prison, would you still be wearing prison clothes? Would you go home wearing your prison uniform? 
Would you try and get a job wearing your prison uniform and get on public transport? You wouldn't, would you? You think, I've paid my sentence. I don't have to wear these clothes anymore. I've got a new life. But sometimes we walk around in the prison clothes. You've been released from that. You have a new way of living now, a new kingdom lifestyle that God wants you to walk into. No more prison. No more tied up like that. New attitudes, new conducts. And if you read Ephesians 4 through to 6, you'll see that. You know, we think about putting on the armour of God in Ephesians 6. But right through that, Paul says, this is how you live now. This is your life free with liberty and grace, demonstrating the kingdom. You're not just a new person. You're the child of a king. The child of a king. So you are chosen, holy, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful privilege. You know, you didn't do anything to earn that. But it's yours. What better motivation could there be to live that kingdom lifestyle and to demonstrate that kingdom lifestyle to other people so they too can be part of it? You are now the subject of the sovereign rule of Jesus. You've been freed from prison. Why don't we start living like it? May God bless his word to you today.